You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. This is episode 35. Good morning, everyone. Okay. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and today we're going to be doing something a little different. Um, there are going to be some of these weeks where, for whatever reason, scheduling or, or um, just the time is not there, uh, I don't have a guest lined up to interview. And so I thought what would be fun is maybe um, if we go through... Um, kind of just debunking some FUD. Um, I'm going to be going through the different sides of Nick Carter's FUD dice, if you're familiar with those. Um, they're basically a 12-sided dice um, that's got a, some very stereotypical um, mainstream media FUD talking points. I'll, I'll link in the show notes to the article that Nick put out explaining how to use the dice, but the basic idea is that they're just the stereotypes that FUD is made from. And so you would, as a mainstream media journalist who wants to write a zero-effort Bitcoin hit piece, you would just simply roll the dice a couple of times and write down the the things that are written there, and then you would have your main points, and, and just it's a matter of elaboration from there. So uh, <laughs> I thought it might be fun, though, to... Um, go into a little more detail about these various topics and why they're FUD, why they are either unfounded or um, not handled uh, even-handedly by most people when they bring them up um, as an attack against Bitcoin. So um, today we are talking about deflation. That is the side of the dice that we are looking at is deflation. And so we're going to look at what deflation is and whether or not it's actually a bad thing and how much of that actually applies to Bitcoin. So um, it, it is tied closely with the um, the 21 million Bitcoin cap, and but, but we are not going to be talking much about the cap other than that it is kind of the source of the deflation. So um, let's let's talk about what deflation is first. So deflation is for our purposes when the price of goods and services drops or said another way, the price of the purchasing power of your currency of choice goes up. Those, those are basically two ways to say the same thing. Um, as opposed to inflation, which is what we usually experience with fiat currencies, um, where your purchasing power goes down or the supply of the dollar, for instance, is inflated, right? Either overtly by the printing press where they actually are printing more dollars or, um, you know, more subtle means by things like um, loaning out more money than there actually is in reserves, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what inflation is. Deflation is the opposite of that. Your you, The purchasing power per unit of your currency increases because 
uh, well, for various reasons, and we'll get into that in a second. So basically, either goods get cheaper or your purchasing power gets stronger, however you want to say that. Um, okay, so there are some people who would say that all deflation is bad. And I think either they are just repeating a line that they've heard from somebody else or they haven't really thought it through. That's, I'm not even, I'm not even going to address that one because the person who says all deflation is bad, I don't think has, has actually considered what they're saying. Um, more, um, honest, uh, more nuanced people would say that there are a couple of types of deflation. So you've got quote unquote good deflation, um, which, which, tends to be where the price of goods comes down because the ways of making them have gotten faster or less expensive or or more efficient in some manner. So this is the kind of thing we see with something like cell phones or computers, right? Where the, um, over time, you know, the goods get cheaper, right? For the, for the same model or, or the same power you are getting it for less money or in, you know because sometimes they're not going to keep making the same model year after year and charging you less money they they will make a more powerful processor or whatever for about the same cost right you're getting more for your money whether that's um, actually spending less money or spending the same or even slightly more money but getting um, bigger jumps in I am again. I'm using computers and, and phones processing power or speed or, um, you know, look at hard drive capacity things like that. Right. Um, versus 10, 15, 20 years ago, what it costs you to get, um, you know, gigs of storage space or terabytes of storage space. Um, yeah, it's just a huge change. Um, or, or look at flat screen TVs, what those would have cost you 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, now they, you know, I think a lot of mainstream economists would say that's good deflation, right? That happens because the methods of production have gotten better. And so the companies can make them easier and then they don't have to charge as much. They can pass along those savings. And I would say this is what we should see in basically every industry. This doesn't pertain particularly to Bitcoin. I'm just saying the reason that we don't see this across all industries is that usually the industries, and I say usually just because there might be some examples I'm not aware of, but for the most part, um, you would see this in any industry that was not highly regulated. So you see it in things like consumer electronics And you don't see it in things like cars, right? Cars just continue to get more and more expensive. Why? Um, Because it's a highly government-regulated industry. You have these cafe standards that they add new regulations on for safety and emissions and blah, blah, blah every year. And the big car companies, I don't want to go into this too far, but essentially the big car companies don't ever push back on the passage of these new standards because it keeps them in business by keeping new companies from, you know, new companies can't start up because that's one more hurdle that they would have to jump past on top of all the other ones that these big existing companies have already been through. Um, 
So, I mean, if you think about it, I'm, I'm speaking from a, from a United States perspective here, but when was the last time you saw a new car company, right? The only two um, new car companies I can think of in my memory are Scion, which was an offshoot, literally a Scion, of Toyota, so it didn't have to start from scratch, or Tesla, which also, I mean, you can say what you want about good things about Elon Musk, but he's not necessarily a small government guy. Like, all of his projects have big government backing in some grant or something. So, um, you know, and not to say that Tesla doesn't have its hurdles and and fights in the free market, um, but that's another discussion entirely. My point is that you don't see new car companies coming up all the time in the same way that you see, um, you know, new phone companies or, um, you know, consumer small electronics, you know, quote unquote off brands coming up all the time, you know, with like, I mean, look at, let's just take like remote control quadcopters and drones, right? It, there used to be a, just a few brands that were super expensive. And now you can go down to the store and buy one for $10. It's probably not going to be very good or very easy to control, but you can get one for $10. Um, that's my point, is that it's not a heavily regulated industry. Therefore, it gets cheaper and cheaper to make something. Now, the best ones are always probably going to be more expensive, but, you know, whatever. Okay, we've gone off on a tangent here. Let's get back. So, um, what... Now, so that's that's good deflation, right? The products get cheaper by the nature of we can make them better or cheaper or faster or whatever, and, and that savings gets passed along. So by contrast, what they call bad deflation is when you have a scenario where maybe there's some kind of external... Um, press on the economy, right? And there's some kind of hardship. Um, And so the demand for goods is less. And so because the demand is less, eventually the prices have to come down because people are not spending money on that thing. And so in order for the merchants to continue to make money and actually sell their goods, they have to charge less money. And so they, they lower their prices in order to sell. But then, in theory, that creates this expectation that, oh, things will continue to get cheaper. And so we will continue to not buy them. We will continue to hold our money or hoard our money. And I use that word in quotations because I think it has this negative connotation. Um, Anyway, I'm not getting into that right now. Okay, so people withhold their money from the economy Um, and then prices continue to fall and it creates this positive feedback loop and and I use that in the biological term positive feedback loop a a self-reinforcing effect where people continue to believe that the prices will go down so they don't spend so the prices have to come down but that reinforces the idea that prices will come down even further tomorrow or next week. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or um, a feedback loop or a vicious cycle, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, the idea then is that this keeps happening and it happens 
to enough people that people begin to go out of business or um, have these huge economic hardships and it's a you know disaster economic catastrophe. Um, and if somebody has a better explanation for that, um, I, I really am trying to steel man this so that uh, I'm not coming off you know super condescending. But to me, it just kind of doesn't make sense on multiple fronts. And so I, I think the easiest thing for me, or or where it's most flawed and most obvious for me, is I look at it and I go, well, one, it doesn't. That doesn't even work across. One, it doesn't work, work globally, right? And and we know that Bitcoin is global, and realistically, the U.S. dollar is global too. And so, you know, there are so many different sectors in the economy. There are so many different cultures using these currencies that it is hard for me to to really think that this applies. Um, it definitely doesn't apply globally, and I don't even think that it really makes sense across an entire country. I think you might have it in happen even let's even assume on its face that it starts happening, right? It it doesn't make sense across all industries. What will happen is that people will stop spending money on the things that they don't need. On frivolous things. And, and I use that word loosely because frivolous could be, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of something really stupid. Um, you know, magazines at the grocery store rack or frivolous could be upgrading your iPhone, right? Because it's, it's not that it's a bad thing and that's going to last you longer and add more to your life probably than the magazine, but it still might not be, it's, it's not a necessity, for life, right? And so people's preferences are going to start showing up and they will not spend on those kind of things, but it's not like they're not spending any money and it's not like no money is moving through the economy. If you are in some kind of contractual obligation, you will still have to keep spending that money. You know, if you have an apartment, you will still have to pay your rent every month. If you have a mortgage on your home, your bank or whoever operates that loan is not going to suddenly say, well, that's okay if you just want to save your money. No, you will have to pay them the money that you agreed to pay them. So that's not going away. Um, the daily things that you have to purchase are not going away. You're still going to need groceries. Now, you might be able to buy less groceries. You might even put more consideration into the nutrient density of your food. I think that's a valid point. I think what you would see is um, grocery purchases would divide into two categories. People who are more educated about their food would probably make more of an effort to buy nutrient-dense food so that you are getting more for what you are spending. And then people who are less educated about what goes into their food will probably just buy whatever's cheapest. Um, they, they are economizing based on different information sets, so they, they will be buying um, the jumbo family packs, you know, where you are getting a higher volume for what you're spending. Um, I would say that's probably not the best path to take because that's not taking into consideration nutrient density. And um, you can talk to 
uh, Bitstein about <laughs> uh, meat or, you know, even other people who live uh, more healthy or are more nutrient conscious than I am uh, about what the best path for, for what you're eating is. But I can tell you that there is a difference between buying the jumbo pack of um, Easy Mac or, you know, the mega 58 unit pack of ramen versus, um, you know, some steak or whatever. Um, yeah. Anyway, again, tangent here. But my point is, so there might be some um, economization of food, but people will still have their preferences and their choices and it will not be uniform. People will value different things. So some products might get taken off the shelves. Some people, individuals, might be hurt in that their product is no longer desirable in the market and they might have to change jobs. They might lose their jobs. There might be individual suffering. I'm not saying that will never happen. What I am saying is, I mean, people might have to move across the country. We, we, you know, that's happened in history. Um, when hard times come economically in one region, people move to another. And so the problem, my problem is this belief that people will hold on to money indefinitely and not spend at all or not spend so much that things begin to collapse. I, I just don't buy that. Um, because you still have to pay for your daily things, um, food, your utilities, whatever transportation, whether that's your own personal vehicle or public transportation to get to your job. Um, you know, th there are enough quote unquote necessities and, and things that we view as necessity. Now, now some of that, again, you might have some some economic preference going on. Some of those things that you thought were necessities might change. But again, this is not going to be a country, a nationwide, um, you know, economy catastrophe. It's just, it's just not, um, because things will still get bought. And as money shifts, into the hands of the people who are making goods that people want. Now they've got an excess of money and they can spend, um, you know, they, they, if they're wise, they will save some too, but they might also have more ability to buy things that are not a necessity. So it, yeah, the, the idea that things would happen as a unified, um, just un, un, feeling force with no individual preferences just ignores human nature and then you know even even putting all of that aside the the bis the bank of international settlements had a paper came, that came out let's see when did this come out uh march of 2015 okay here it is yeah so march of 2015 they release this paper from these four people at the BIS. And, and remember, the, these are the central bankers of central bankers, right? These are, you know, when that meme goes around about the Bitcoin final boss, he's part of the BIS. So, so that's who we're talking about here, all right? And even these guys have this paper that comes out in March of 2015, where they look at the cost of deflation across history 
and they look at 38 different economies over 140 years during times of deflation. And let me read you this. This is their, their summary paragraph. It says, Concerns about deflation, falling prices of goods and services, are rooted in the view that it is very costly. We test the historical link between output growth and deflation in a sample covering 140 years for up to 38 economies. The evidence suggests that this link is weak and derives largely from the Great Depression. But we find a stronger link between output growth and asset price deflations, particularly during post-war property price deflations. We fail to uncover evidence that high debt has so far raised the cost of goods and services price deflations in so-called debt deflations. The most damaging interaction appears to be between property price deflations and private debt. I'll link in the show notes to this paper. You can go through and read for yourself. It's pretty dry, but um, basically, you know, even they are saying that it is not um, that that deflation is not as costly as everyone makes it out to be, and that most of that belief that's perpetuated is based out of the Great Depression and the you know the time around the Great Depression, and if you take that out as an outlier, that it doesn't really hold water. Um, there is some problems related to um, private debt and certain assets like property, and you can read that for yourself. But by and large, like deflation is not this huge boogeyman problem. Um, and again, remember, this is the BIS saying this. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about what deflation is versus inflation, and we have um, talked about why deflation on its own is not actually a bad thing in the economy. Let's talk about how it applies to Bitcoin, because right, that's what we're trying to get to here, is that... Um, so, so Bitcoin's monetary policy is that there will um, new coins are you know mined or minted, however you want to say that. When miners secure the network, every approximately every ten minutes, a new block is produced. There is a Coinbase reward that goes to the miner, and um, the um, the mining policy is that it is a um it it is done at a geometric rate like it is a diminishing rate that halves approximately every 4 years so um in the beginning it was 50 bitcoins per block and then it went to 25 bitcoins per block and then it went to what it is currently at which is 12 and a half bitcoins per block mined and here in the next couple years, we will have another having, and it will be, um, what is that? 50, 25, 12.5, 6.25 bitcoins per block. Sorry, I don't know why I, you know, had a mini stroke there. Um, I couldn't do math. Anyway, so, and that will, that pattern will continue until we get down to basically no new bitcoin is minted. And so, you have this deflationary policy where less Bitcoin is minted as time goes on. And, um, you know, we could get into why that was 
and why wasn't it a constant rate out for a certain amount of time or whatever. Um, I don't know that I want to get into all that. I, I kind of think that by doing that, you set it up to be rewarding to those who helped secure and bootstrap the network in the beginning. Um, and, and as the price w- goes up through time, then obviously more people are going to want in. And so the reward is less. That's a personal opinion. Um, I'm sure there's others out there who could explain their thoughts on why, why Satoshi said it the way he did, um, better than I can articulate, but that's kind of my two cents in that direction. But the idea is that, um, there's a 21 million hard cap at the end and that every four ish years, um, the reward halves until it gets down eventually to nothing. And all the Bitcoin has been mined. That's why deflation, deflation does apply to Bitcoin. Now, this idea of the deflationary spiral. So there's a a good article on the Bitcoin wiki that I will link to that goes through and kind of says, again, like here's kind of the idea of the deflationary spiral and here's what it means to the current fractional reserve banking system and here's why it doesn't apply to Bitcoin. So they have a good thing. Let's see here. Okay, so basically they're saying here, um, and again, I'll link this in the show notes, but basically um, the differences are that uh, the Bitcoin is not a debt-based asset. The value deflates when the Bitcoin economy is growing. Um, yeah, essentially it just it doesn't apply because the, the problems are based on debt-based assets like the U.S. dollar and loans and things like that, whereas, you know, Bitcoin is what it is. You know, as the price goes up, what you own is worth more, um, but that's not really a problem. Now, um, this kind of does get into the idea of holding or hodling, and that plays a part in here because... I guess another way to look at this is this idea that a the, the fears of the deflationary spiral, spiral come from the idea that a currency's value comes from um, what's sometimes called velocity or movement, right? The transactions that, that by continuing to move, the currency um, has value. But that only makes sense if you have an inflationary currency, right? You want to spend it because it's like a hot potato. Like, you know that it's going to be worth less tomorrow or next year. And so you really kind of want to move it into something else that's going to hold value, right? You don't really want to hold on to U.S. dollars long term. Um, and putting them into a 3% savings account is at best breaking even because, you know, Inflation is targeted at two to three percent per year, so you know a two to three percent return on your investment is essentially just breaking even because your purchasing power is dwindling away, and so you want to buy something that is going to hold its value better than that, um, which is why people bought gold and silver back in the day. I mean, I guess there's still gold bugs that that buy it, um, or people will buy uh, guns 
or antiques or collectibles or these other things that are going to hold their value better than the U.S. dollar. It doesn't really work for Bitcoin. Now, that's not to say Bitcoin's price isn't volatile, that it doesn't move up and down relative to the dollar or whatever else. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying this idea that like the deflationary spiral is bad and like holding that holding is a problem for Bitcoin is not true. So um, I'll link in the show notes to an article by Daniel Krawitz that um, it's called... I'm hoarding Bitcoins and no, you can't have any. This is back in from February of 2014. And he, he basically makes the point in here that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of silly when you go to, uh, and again, this is an old, this is from, you know, kind of before the um, Bitcoin cash hard fork, but there had been other um, ideas of people wanting something that, that scaled better or whatever but but this idea of like going to a merchant and trying to get them to accept bitcoin because it's like saying hey will you take this thing that i don't want anymore for this product that i do want and that's not really a good way to get people to want bitcoin right like if you're trying to get rid of it why would i want it what's wrong with it that you're trying to get rid of it is how people look at it when you do it but when you when you hoard it or when you hold it um, that gives it value because you're expressing your th- your interest like, hey, I want this thing and no, I'm not giving you any and I'm not selling it to you. Oh, well, now they kind of want it. That's just, that's just human nature um, for the most part. And so, and we see this play out across exchanges, right? Because the market price for Bitcoin is based on what people are willing to buy and sell it for. And so, um, and, and the volume that's out there. And so as people hold, as hodlers increase their hodlings, then there is less Bitcoin to be sold, which means that the supply is less. And so if the supply is less and the demand stays the same or goes up, then the price goes up. And so, um, again, this is kind of a backwards mentality some people have. And I've even thought this too, of like, well, we need to get merchants to accept Bitcoin. And I think a better thought is instead of trying to get merchant adoption, just whatever you do, try and do it and earn Bitcoin, whether that's your main job or like a side job, do it in and accept Bitcoin um, or even give a discount for customers who pay in Bitcoin, right? If you, if you really want Bitcoin. Um, and that drives demand as the price goes up, that drives demand from speculators, that brings in more media attention, that brings in these things, and people, and, then, and that brings the price back up again. And so, um, um, I kind of lost my train of thought here, but but the idea that, like, um, spending does not give Bitcoin value, hodling gives it value. And um, and so, that's why, like, the, this whole idea of deflation doesn't, makes sense as this crisis thing for Bitcoin. Like, it's not a bad thing. Yes, it's a deflationary currency. And on top of that, it's a known, out there in the open, everyone can see it, this is happening. It's not suddenly sprung on you by um, the Fed changing interest rates, right? Where you weren't planning for this, now it's happened. Oh, well, should I hold off on my purchase if it's going to go lower? Uh, Maybe. 
No, you know what, you may not know what the value, the, the market price of Bitcoin is going to be tomorrow, but you know how much is going to be mined. You know how many of them there's going to be available. Um, not on the market, but like how many of them will have been minted by that point. Um, it is an open, honest system, and it's the most open and honest system we've got. All right, let's see. Oh, um, just kind of another one of those, or, or kind of to complement this. So there is, and, and this idea is back on that um, Bitcoin Wiki article, there is a link to, what was this from? Oh, this is a Bitcoin Stack Exchange uh, article called Does Hoarding Really Hurt Bitcoin? Kind of those same ideas I just went over. You can read that. Um, but but back on this Bitcoin Wiki deflationary spiral article, at the bottom there's this alternative argument that um, you could have a non-traditional deflationary spiral in Bitcoin where vendors don't want to speculate on the price of a volatile currency. And I just think that doesn't matter uh, honestly like like either a vendor wants it and so they want to accept it or they don't want it and that's I don't care if they don't want it at this point I really don't care I, I think hopefully there will be a day when many if not all vendors accept Bitcoin and that'll be great but I still may not spend it that's just the reality and you know they say that um the the knowledge that the Bitcoin price is going to in continue to to increase, that Bitcoin um, purchasing power will continue to increase, which makes it more expensive, um, will lead to hodling and not spending, and will lead to people creating alternative currencies that cost less. Okay, yes, that that is true. That's where we get Litecoin and Ethereum and all these other things that claim to be, um, you know, cheaper, faster Bitcoins. Okay, that's true, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing in Bitcoin, right? I mean, if you look at history, look at gold versus silver, people only used silver because it was cheaper and more easily divisible than gold. But once you got um, notes that could represent different amounts of gold that could be traded then then silver kind of went away. And so um, this is where I see, uh, well, one, this is obviously where Bitcoin is superior to gold because, you know, it's divisible out to eight decimal places. And then with lightning, it's pretty much divisible out to whatever you want it to be, more or less. Um, you can send fractions of Satoshis with lightning. And so... Um, this is kind of another talk for another time, but but essentially, if you've been paying attention to what is um, happening in Lightning right now and how much easier and more user-friendly it's getting, it's still a little reckless. Um, but if you've seen um, Pierre Richard's um, graphical, his, his, his Lightning node, um, his Bitcoin Lightning node, um, graphical interface that's based on Excel, or um, if you've seen the Joule extension, I mean, these things are making, every day, making Lightning easier to use for normal people. And so um, Lightning is nearly instantaneous. It is highly divisible. It can be used for small amounts. Um, there are mobile wallets that are working 
towards using, um, you know, being, I mean, there's, there's still, I don't know if you want to call it beta testing or whatever, but they are getting better and better every day. And so, um, yes, they're going to go the way that silver went. Like, um, I'm sorry, altcoins will go the way that silver went. And I don't mean that as a compliment. I just mean, sure, people bought them because they were cheaper than Bitcoin, but they're not going to last and they're going to go away and lightning or other second layer solutions are going to make them obsolete. Okay, and then the other thing is that we can look historically at, um, so so yes, hodling is good for the value of Bitcoin. It drives the price up. But at some point, and, and this is again kind of goes back to the idea that like every person is individual and has their own preferences. They have their own point where the price of the the purchasing power of the Bitcoin that they're hodling gets so much that, hey, I've got a little playing money here and I can spend this on something. And so everybody's different, but eventually the price gets high enough that somebody either sells because they were speculating or they're trying to, um, you know, get a hold of those capital gains. Uh, good luck with the taxes. Um or whatever, you know, they say, hey, I've gotten out everything I've put in at this point, and so I'm going to cash out. Um, that's not me. I'm hodling. But, um, you know, if the if the price went high enough, you know, if we turned around tomorrow and the price went up to 25000 I might sell a little bit, probably because if it went that fast tomorrow, it's not going to stay that high, um, and it's going to come back down, and then I'm going to make a lot of money and then buy it all up again on the dip. But, um you know, different people have different price points at which they would sell some, um, some or all. And, um, there's this, I'll link in the show notes to this as well. This is from, uh, jjgames.com. I'm trying to figure out, I think they just sell a bunch of old Nintendo and Sega games, but, um, I found this link where they went through and talked about, um, their, their, Bitcoin-based sales um, uh, graphed against the price rises in Bitcoin. And this is, I don't know when this is from. Uh, I think this was put out in 2013. I'm trying to find a date on this little article, post thing, whatever. But basically they look at their sales rate in Bitcoin versus the price. And during the times when the price went up, so they've got two, this is, um, so during the time period measured, Bitcoin has had two major deflationary periods where the value of the currency increased substantially. One from April 15th, 2011 to June 9th, 2011, and another from June 15th, 2013 to April 9th, 2013. So I'm guessing this article was put out in 2013. During the first deflationary period, um, which was April to June of 2011, prices increased uh, over 2,800% in 56 days, going from a value of $1 to $29.58 US dollars, uh, $29.58. During these same 56 days, Bitcoin sales averaged $79.82 per day on JJ Games, a 363% increase from the average. In the second deflationary period, which was January to April of 2013, 
Bitcoin prices increased 1,500% in 85 days, increasing from $13.34 to $214.67. During the same time, the average daily sales denominated in Bitcoin was $22.60, a 31% increase from the average. So, um, um, my point here is that as the price goes up, people who were either speculating or, again, holding, um, you know, at some point the price gets too high and people, I don't I say too high, the price gets high enough that people are willing to spend it. And so this whole idea of um, deflation as this catastrophic event, it just doesn't even make sense. Um, people, people hodl, which drives the price up, and then when the price gets high enough, people sell or people buy things with it. And that's not a bad thing. Um, th there's also the, of course, the HODL waves post. Um, this is from April of last year by Drew Bansall of Unchained Capital. Um, and, and they put out um, some, some really good um, Bitcoin data science is, is what they call their series. But they've got three really good articles you should check out. Um, but I'll link this one, the HODL waves um, that Drew put out last year. And it basically looks at UTXOs, the, the age of UTXO sets. And so looking at when things move and that there are these waves of, uh, you know, a lot of coins move when the price goes up or um, they a lot of stuff moved also um, during the, uh, kind of summer leading up to of 2017, leading up to the Bcash hard fork and Segwit activation, as people move their bitcoins in order to um, to collect their Bcash and hopefully sell it or not sell it, whatever. Um, but but essentially, so that people could could make use of that, they moved it. Um, but also, it happens when there is um, big. Um, price pumps. And then in the, the blow-off and the bear markets afterwards, you can see these um, UTXO sets aging and, and what they call the HODL waves. So um, you should check that article out. It goes into a lot of stuff. But, but my point there is, again, while this is not his main point, part of what they talk about is that um, there is a lot of movement on these UTXO sets when the price goes up quickly. Um, um, he's focused more on the, the after side and, and the hodling during, um, the bear markets. But I'm just saying this again, reinforces this idea that like when the price goes up, people spend it. And how do you get the price to go up? You hodl it. So anyway, um, hopefully that all makes sense. If you have questions about, deflation or if you have a better explanation of it than I than I gave please let me know so I can link to it and tweet about it and give you credit um, I, I kind of looked hope I was hoping that um, maybe Tom Woods and Bob Murphy would have a Contra Krugman episode that was talking about deflation I couldn't find one but if you have one um, please send that my way so I can link that as well and um, yeah I hope you guys hope you guys understood that I, I think this is kind of important um, not, not the deflation thing in itself, but just um, the more that you understand Bitcoin, the better you are able to counter these 
um, FUD narratives when people bring them up with very little understanding of what they're actually talking about. So um, um, I think this this FUD busting series is going to be fun and uh, it, it won't all be together. It'll be kind of interspersed between weeks when I have guests. But um, yeah, that, that that's what we're going to be doing when it's just me and um, we'll get some learning done. Okay, as always, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is uh, like and retweet and subscribe and share the show in various manners um, across whatever social media you use. Subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And and then if you want to contribute uh, financially, you can um, go to bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate. Um, I have links there to my Tallycoin page, which has kind of all the Bitcoin donation stuff on it, um, as well as my Paynim there. Um, just something to, if, you, if you're if you not familiar with how a Tallycoin works and how Paynim works, Tallycoin is kind of like a, um, uh, DJ Booth created it, as, he's positioned it as kind of like a, a Bitcoin alternative to Patreon or Kickstarter. It includes um, support for Lightning. Um, I don't have that activated yet. It also supports, um, excuse me, it also includes support for Paynims. Um, but because of the way that Paynims work, your donation, if you send through a Paynim, will not show up because that's the point of Paynim. It's it's a bit 47 based thing that um, it's Samurai Wallet's implementation of it but essentially it is a more private way of sending so anyway you should check that out but know that if you're sending through Paynim it will not show up for bragging rights for all to see so you decide what's more important to you I would be appreciative either way and I guess that is going to wrap us up as always if you um, have ideas for the show um, of who uh, who should be on or what I should talk about, hit me up at BottomShelfBTC on Twitter. And um, I guess that's it for this week. For Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>